0: Well, good morning, uh, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marian Tupi. I'm a senior policy analyst um, with the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. And I run a website called humanprogress.org. During the 20th century and during the 21st century, political dictators were not only popular in their own countries, but were also admired by numerous highly educated and idealistic Westerners. Uh, The objects of this uh, political hero worship included Benito Mussolini, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Fidel Castro, and more recently, Hugo Chavez. Few people remember it today, but the original lyrics from Cole Porter's immensely popular 1934 musical, Anything Goes, originally read, you are the top, You are Mussolini. You are the top. You are Mrs. Sweeney. Today, of course, it reads, you are the top. You are an O'Neill drama. You are the top. You are Whistler's mama. So some progress there. And whereas few people today openly praise Hitler or Mussolini, it is not uncommon to see young men and women in our nation's capital wearing Che Guevara t-shirts, and to see American entertainers like Michael Moore and intellectuals like Noam Chomsky praise the Castro brothers and Hugo Chavez. Paul Hollander spent decades trying to understand why intelligent and educated people are attracted to authoritarianism and totalitarianism and why they persist in doing so even today after a century of incredible bloodshed perpetrated by governments against their own people. Paul Hollander was born in 1932 in Hungary and fled to the West when the Hungarian Revolution of 1956 was bloodily put down by the Soviet forces. He's a well-known American political sociologist, communist communist studies scholar, and nonfiction author. His first book in 1973, was called Soviet and American, so- and American Society, A Comparison. In 1981, he came out with his probably best-known work, Political Pilgrims. The many phases of socialism followed in 1983. Then came the survival of the adversary culture, decline, and discontent, anti-Americanism, critiques at home and abroad, discontents postmodern and post-communist, The End of Commitment, The Only Superpower, Extravagant Expectations, and Other Books. Today, we are here to talk about a book that came out last year, From Benito Mussolini to Hugo Chavez, Intellectuals and a Century of Political Hero Worship. Hollander earned a PhD in sociology from Princeton University in 1963 and a BA from the London School of Economics in 1959. He is professor emeritus of sociology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and a center associate of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. He is a member of the advisory council of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. With that, Paul, over to you
1: well you already heard something about my background (coughs) which certainly helps to explain my interests and my what my wife considers my morbid fascination with the dark chapters of modern history or perhaps even human nature (coughs) my wife is a native-born American and she could never understood how I can read all these terrible stories about how people mistreat one, one, one another for various reasons So these interests of mine are long-standing, and uh, well, I started out as a kind of a Sovietologist. And uh, then I sort of shifted to looking at the country and the culture of the society, and especially American intellectuals and Western intellectuals. And uh, as uh, was just said, Indeed, Political Pilgrimage" is my my best-known book. this recent book, actually this book was published this year, but they, they put in 2016, but actually it was published last winter. I don't know why they put in 2016. Anyway, <clears throat> this book, as the, as the blurb people also said, has a lot in common with political pilgrims, but I would like to draw your attention with how it differs from it. And uh, I will also cite from it occasionally. Well, of course, the major similarity between the two books that both are, in some ways, concerned with the political misjudgments of Western intellectuals. And uh, people who reviewed the book also focused on this similarity that they are both about the misjudgment of Western political intellectuals. Um, And this, indeed, has been a longstanding preoccupation and also, it's a somewhat controversial point as to what proportion of Western intellectuals could be characterized as leftist or pro-Soviet or pro-communist. And <coughs> some people criticize me for overgeneralizing. But I always pointed out, and I repeated it in this book, too, that we don't know, because we don't know what proportion of Western intellectuals were sympathetic to the Soviet Union or Mao's China or. Castro's Cuba, because there are no opinion surveys addressed to intellectuals as such. What we know is that uh, there was clearly a portion of visible and vocal intellectuals who were sympathetic to these countries or political systems. And um, my my approach to this topic also led me to propose a number of times that uh, the prevailing or surviving uh, conceptions of intellectuals need revision. And I would like to read you one quote, one characterization of intellectuals which I have clearly found dated and dubious. And uh, this was by Edward, the late Edward Said. And he said, I quote now, the figure of the intellectual as a being set apart, someone able to speak the truth a courageous and angry individual for whom no worldly power is too big and imposing to be criticized and pointedly taken to task. And so he also said in the same exalted view that the real or true intellectual is always an outsider (coughs) living in self-imposed, seamlessly integrated exile on the margins of society, Now, of course, this is the same... Edward Said, who was a university professor at Columbia, and his books were required readings and numerous courses on the college campuses. And he was endlessly on television holding forth, so not exactly a marginal figure. But again, he he had this view of intellectuals, which many intellectuals still believe in or maintain. But it's clearly dated, There there was perhaps a time when intellectuals were marginal figures. And again, it also depends on what society we are talking about. So I, I thought that uh, the political misperceptions of intellectuals demand or justify some revision, since uh, I obviously I found that uh, they, they were capable of uh, completely suspending their critical faculties and, uh, and act like uh, the proverbial true believers. But again. In the, in the book, Political Pilgrims, uh, my major concern was the intellectual's overall perception of particular, <clears throat> could I have my glass of water, communist systems, rather than focusing on <clears throat> leaders. Now, <clears throat> another similarity between the Political Pilgrim book and this one, that, uh, of course, I have been intellectuals in the, I have been interested in the connections between the personal and political attributes and experiences and needs which influence political belief and I am still interested in that <clears throat> the personal and the political and uh, this is this is very tricky because of course I, I don't propose to reduce political beliefs to you know how a person was toilet trained or some such thing but on the other hand I have been repeatedly struck by connections between... Personal experience and uh, political attitudes, uh, as as my own case illustrates, this too. But sorry about my voice. Certainly, in the 1960s in this country, it seemed to be it. It it was the prevalent view that uh, the personal both determines and validates the political. I mean, the personal is political. This was a kind of 60s catchphrase. <clears throat> and uh, and it, this originated with the left. And uh, how the personal influence is the political—that of course depends on many many things and contexts. And uh, <clears throat> in the, in this book, at the end of this book, I have a long list of distinguished American or Western intellectuals who have never been sympathizers with communist systems and movements. And. Uh, and avoided the temptations which others succumbed to. <clears throat> I should add that I have also been interested in other instances of the misjudgment or misperceptions of distortions of reality, not only in the political sphere. I have been interested in commercial advertising and, of course, in political propaganda. <clears throat> and, um, in general, I have been interested in the how people deal with the difference or similarity between appearance and reality, and of course, this has been always a major preoccupation of intellectuals: appearance and reality. <clears throat> and you, you could say that the present day identity politics, in a way, is also a reflection of this connection between the personal and the political, that people, some people believe that certain kinds of identities determine their outlook, political outlook. <clears throat> so how, how ideas influence behavior, I always thought, is a very interesting issue. And once more, I will shamelessly quote from what I have written earlier. <clears throat> and I think this is perhaps the key to this relationship between personal and political which is that I have written that political attitudes and beliefs often stem from non-political sources. That includes a self-conscious orientation towards self-transcendence, self-expression, and personal problem-solving through political action and immersion. That is to say that many of the intellectuals I I have written about tried to find answers and solutions for personal problems and discontents, which couldn't really be found, the solutions in the public or the social political realm. And and another good comment I will quote to you about this matter of the intellectuals and their attitudes and beliefs comes from Tibor Samueli, who is not so well known. He was also of Hungarian origin. And uh, he lived, he was an academic in England and he wrote, at some point in his life that what struck him about the involvement of progressive intellectuals in politics, that their political commitment had a fundamentally non-intellectual nature, almost invariably an emotional attitude, owing very little to the process of reasoning and study that one usually associates with the word intellectual." So these are the general issues and interests about intellectuals. I have written about earlier, and as I said, I I have moved to some degree more more into a psychological direction than a sociological. And I am, you know, by training, I am a sociologist, although I have never been a quantitative sociologist. <clears throat> but again. The study, both of these books reflect my durable preoccupation with what I call the spiritual problems of modernity, or the byproducts of modernity, or the unheroic aspects of modernity, with special reference to social isolation and loss of meaning and the decline of community and decline of social solidarity and secularization. And here again, I am tempted to quote Daniel Bell, the late Daniel Bell, who made a very good point on this subject, and very terse point about the problems of modernity, which he called the problem of belief. He said, the real problem of modernity is the problem of belief. And the problem is that bourgeois society falls short of responding adequately to the full range of man's spiritual nature. It is a religious vacuum, a lack of meaning in their own lives, namely the intellectuals he was also writing about, the absence of a larger purpose in their society that terrifies them and provokes them to alienation and unappeasable indignation. Unquote. So, uh, this, is a, this is a persistent strain in my thinking and preoccupations, you know why intellectuals made this remarkable political misjudgment. Now, one difference between the political pilgrims and this book, that in this book, I was not limiting myself to communist systems, but also included Nazi Germany and fascist Italy and some of the authoritarian systems in the, in the Arab world, as well as North Korea, uh, which received some admiration on the part of intellectuals. So I was very interested in, you know, how the admiration of Stalin might be compared with the admiration of Hitler or Mussolini. So that's one big difference. And the other was that in this book I focused on intellectual, on leaders, on political leaders and dictators, which I didn't do in political pilgrims. And so uh, the range was much wider because I was interested in the broader issues of the beliefs of intellectuals and uh, I came to the probably not very original conclusion that uh, intellectuals also displayed uh, religious or quasi-religious yearnings in their search for meaning, so that uh, and and that they went along with this political hero worship of particular leaders and dictators who were who were really de- deified. Now, of course. Uh, The veneration of Hitler and Mussolini was much more short-lived than the veneration of Stalin or Mao, for obvious reasons. But again, there was an obvious irrational component to these attitudes. And I think one of the most interesting findings was that uh, what intellectuals admired most in these leaders, in these dictators, had more to do with their personality than with their actual policies. That the intellectuals, well, first of all, there was this conception of the philosopher king, that all these leaders were philosopher kings. And uh, the dictators themselves contributed to this myth, because they are thought of themselves as great intellects. And many of them have written books. Almost all of them have written books and thought of themselves as great theorists. and. Uh, those in the, well, Hitler, too, they were interested in arts, you know, Hitler attended an exhibit of the, the degenerate art and so forth, and of course Stalin and Mao, they, they were, and Castro, too, very much involved with Stalin, in particular, read manuscripts of novels before they were published, so uh, <clears throat> they, they had this myth that they were also sort of fellow intellectuals, and Castro when Western intellectuals, for example C. Wright Mills, the famous sociologist when he visited Castro, and lo and behold, Castro knew about one of his books. And this was not an accident, obviously. So uh, <clears throat> intellectuals actually, there was this sort of phenomenon of uh, what I call uh, politics of hospitality or techniques of hospitality, whereby intellectuals who visited the communist systems invariably encountered ordinary citizens who were familiar with their writings. And of course, this made a huge impression on intellectuals who often thought that in their own countries, they were underappreciated and, and, uh, not, and didn't have sufficient influence. So these are the two major differences. Uh, that here I am interested in the broader phenomenon of political hero worship and not limited to the communist ones now some of my major findings or conclusions uh, what what these leaders had in common of, of totally different uh, well or apparently different political outlook and certainly of different political ideologies you know nazis and communists and fascists and so forth <clears throat> that uh, they they projected this sense of mission I think that was very important. And uh, again, this this made a big impression on intellectuals who thought that their own politicians were rather inferior and insufficiently idealistic, I mean, politicians in Western countries, whereas these great leaders were believed to be revolutionary idealists. Uh, Possessed, here I am quoting something, possessed by an absolute sense of moral superiority based on an ideology that claimed to explain everything. This sense of certitude can justify the worst horrors in the name of sanctity, purity, and the general improvement of life of the multitudes. And I think this comes from Daniel Shiro, an American political scientist. Uh, So of course, Western Western politicians were were not interested in a fundamental change of society or human nature, whereas the people I have written about these leaders or dictators uh, claim to be interested in just that, a fundamental transformation of society and human nature. And uh, of course, the other interesting thing about this phenomenon, which has also been called Uh, the cult of personality, where Khrushchev came up with this phrase, the cult of personality, and applied it to Stalin. But you could apply it to Hitler and Mussolini and Mao and the rest of them. The the interesting thing was that there was this enormous, astonishing gap between the perception or the images of these leaders and their actual personality. I mean, ob- obviously, to, 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 to use an understatement, they were not very nice people, none of these. And uh, this somehow elided the intellectuals and the admirers. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, there was a huge, I think one factor, obviously, in these misperceptions was just, just ignorance, sheer ignorance. <clears throat> as to what went on in these societies or what the policies of particular leaders was. But uh, again, I I should mention here that uh, many people try to explain the behavior of intellectuals, Western intellectuals who succumb to these illusions by power hunger, that they themselves wanted power and they were under the impression that intellectuals in, in these countries, whether they were communist or Nazi or fascist They had more power and more influence, uh, which they really didn't have. And um, these these same leaders, you know, Hitler and Mussolini and Mao and Stalin and Castro, they actually had intellectuals in contempt, but they could use them, and they used them as much as they could. So I am not inclined to believe that intellectuals actually made this misjudgment because of their desire for power. I, I, I think I have a more charitable explanation, which is simply that uh, there, was, there was ignorance, and there was unhappiness with their own society. And there, was, uh, there were these problems with modernity, lack of meaning, lack of uh, sense of community. And also, I think one thing, in my opinion, a very important characteristic intellectuals have in common, whether or not they admired Stalin or Hitler, that they have high expectations. I think that's the, I think you could say that this, this is high expectations, which, of course, merges into idealism. And, and that they really thought that a new chapter in history could be opened by these leaders. <clears throat> so uh, <clears throat> As to my findings, uh, I think th- these might be called secular religious or quasi-religious impulses which found political expression. Now, if we, most of these people didn't actually meet personally the intellectuals in question, although many of them did. And when they did, then, then again, they made very favorable impression. And uh, these people, Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini and the rest of them, were actually quite good at projecting a kind of personality which the intellectuals found attractive. Um, As I said, this philosopher king image and this revolutionary idealism, or the assumption or the belief that these dictators used political power wisely and benevolently, that they were kind, that they, they, well, I think this is the most important for intellectuals, they bridged the gap between theory and practice. They did what they claimed to believe in, which is, which is it's debatable to what extent it applies. <clears throat> or that they were authentic. I think this is this is an important issue. I think that modern intellectuals, especially, I think, American intellectuals have been particularly bothered by this feeling that they lived in an inauthentic society. I think so much of, much of modern social criticism <coughs> of Western, and especially American societies, focused on inauthenticity rather than injustice. Well, injustice too, but inauthenticity. I think the critique of capitalism, much of the critique of capitalism came to be focused on inauthenticity, like advertising, you know, and and public relations, all all these products of modern modern capitalist society. So by contrast, these these, these great heroic leaders seemed to do what they believed in. They were authentic. And again, the most important, from the point of view of their admirers, that they had good intentions. This comes up repeatedly. It sounds like such a simple and trivial matter, but this this made a huge impression on many intellectuals that these people had good intentions, even even when they acknowledged that they didn't succeed to realize these good intentions. Another thing that many of these leaders, dictators, gave the impression that they were successful in trying to somehow blend tradition and modernity with this emphasis on community. Uh, that, that the idea that socialist this was more perhaps more, no, hard to say I was going to say it was more pronounced in the case of communist systems, that they, they succeeded in modernizing without alienation. That, that was a claim. But of course, the Nazis were very, much and very self-consciously involved with the notion of community, national community, as being more important than class and class division. But I think this attempt to blend tradition and modernity was very important, or the the belief that that's what was going on in these countries. Now, you know, here again, just just to give you a very few quotes of these grotesque misperceptions which uh, Western intellectuals engaged in. For example, Sartre said about Che Guevara. But che Guevara is not in the same class as Castro, but he was an important figure, certainly Che Guevara. And uh, Sartre thought about Che Guevara that, this is a quote, he was the most complete human being of our age. Now. You know, here again, one has to reflect on this idea that <clears throat> so many Western intellectuals, this was very pronounced in the 60s and 70s, they were so com- obsessed with this problem of wholeness or the lack of wholeness in Western societies <clears throat> that everything is fragmented. So the division of labor, you know, this was, after all, the, the utopian idea of Marx that in communist systems, communist societies, the division of labor will disappear, and, and this is an old tradition, you know, that specialization is the source of alienation. <clears throat> so uh, this, this was a remarkable observation that, and, and Sartre believed of, that, of course, the residents of or products of Western societies were not whole human beings. But again, the the religious projection was so obvious in many of these instances, uh, because uh, another another well-known intellectual, not the same class as Sartre, but some of you I'm sure know who was I.F. Stone, an American journalist who was perceived as a hard-nosed fact-finder, and he has his own newsletter, I.F. Stone. And he wrote about Che Guevara, and I I only quote this because it's so spectacularly reflective of the religious impulses under these misperceptions. He said about Che Guevara that I quote, in Che Guevara, one felt a desire to heal and pity for suffering. It was out of love, like the perfect knight of medieval romance, that he had set out to combat with the powers of the world. He was like an early saint taking refuge in the desert. Only there could be the purity of the face to be safeguarded," unquote. Now, you know that Che Guevara was indeed an idealist, and he died in this uh, attempt to start a guerrilla movement in Bolivia in the 1960s. And he was, he was executed, and uh, actually, he himself killed people in the course of the Cuban Revolution. He executed people who were considered traitors, not just during the war. <clears throat> and he was he was a ruthless idealist. But of course, there have been very few people like Che Guevara. And of course, he, had, he, he wrote some books too. So it was also possible to, to project upon him this image of the true intellectual who takes action. <clears throat> So, um, there is another, another explanation of the attitude of intellectuals. Uh, I already mentioned uh, high expectations, but high expectations could be connected with a very useful concept, which I don't think it has been used lately very much. And it originated with an American sociologist, Robert Merton, and that is the concept of relative deprivation. Well, it, it's really the same thing as high expectations, relative deprivation. In other words, that people feel deprived because they compare their condition or the condition of other people in their society with some ideal or with some possibility or with some other societies. So it's relative to something. You know, when, when people say that, for example, that poverty in the United States is especially intolerable because there are so many rich people and inequalities are so enormous and the country is so rich in resources that it could be much more egalitarian and uh, inequalities could be much more readily narrowed <clears throat> so i think this is <coughs> excuse me this is an important idea that intellectuals high, have high expectations and maybe maybe they have diminished over time But they thought that societies or political systems could be much more improved, much more radically improved. And uh, therefore they were much more critical of their own societies which had so many flaws which were familiar to them. So I think uh, this probably still remains the case that people, and of course this possibility is improving human nature. This again, in many intellectuals had, had higher hopes than perhaps history or sociology would justify to have about the perfectibility of human nature. <clears throat> now, again, on the personal and political, as I approach the end of this discussion, uh, again, I, I alluded to this earlier, but I just want to give you one more quote, which comes from a 1960s radical. Who, he wasn't well known. He was a he was a weatherman, one of the weathermen in, in you know this organization in America. <clears throat> and he said, I quote: "We have an irreconcilable tension in our existence. Blowing up a bad thing will relieve much of that tension. But he said, so that the preceding sentence doesn't become evidence." Of, of any psychological theories about radicals, it should be pointed out that this is, this is really the key to his belief. It should be pointed out that the psychological problems most of us have are very directly the fault of capitalism. The very virtue of capitalism, in, no, the very virtue of terrorism, in fact, is that it, allow, it allows a spontaneous release of the frustrations caused by capitalism. I think this is a very interesting and uh, authentic statement in that this person believed this at the time he made this statement. Now, it so happens, this is just a curious footnote to this quote, that I met this individual two years ago because he was writing his memoirs when he was an undergraduate at Harvard, and so he interviewed me. He is now a law professor at an American university, and he obviously believes in none of that which he said in the 60s or early 70s. Uh, so I mean, that, that was an interesting and unusual example of this belief in how society can corrupt or undermine people. And and I am not suggesting that society doesn't impinge on the individual. I am just suggesting that it's very difficult <clears throat> to draw the line between the social and the personal. And, uh, people respond to, the, to, to similar experiences in different ways. So uh, I think the, the view, of course, people like Paul Johnson, who wrote a very devastating critique of intellectuals, and he believed, and this will be my last quote, he believed that uh, the personal had a, had a very negative impact that intellectuals or many of the socially critical intellectuals try to rationalize. He believed that, in other words, social critics tend to blame society for their personal failings, which have little to do with the flaws and injustices of the political system. So, uh, but I think that the two points of views can be reconciled insofar as one might conclude that the broader social setting or the type of society one lives in contributes to what seem to be purely personal problems and dispositions, social isolation, or an uncertain sense of identity, or lack of purpose, or meaninglessness. And then, in turn, there are these larger social processes we connect with modernization and rapid social change, which certainly have this uh, problematic impact on people, including intellectuals. Anyway, um, I think I will. I could talk more about these things. And uh, there should be time for your questions and comments. And uh, I would just conclude by observing that the number of true believers uh, might have diminished, but there are still many left. And probably they will be with us for a long time in the foreseeable future, given the imperfections of human beings and human nature. Thank Thank you.
0: Thank you, Paul, very much. Um, Gerard Alexander is an associate professor of politics at the University of Virginia. His research began with a focus on uh, the conditions of democratic consolidation in advanced industrialized countries, especially in Western Europe. In his book, The Sources of Democratic Consolidation, he argued that the key key right-of-center political movements Uh, formed long-term commitments to democracy only when their political risks in democracy became relatively low as left-wing agendas moderated across time. Variation in these risks was used to explain variation in conservative regime preferences and in regime outcomes in Europe's five largest countries, from 1870s France to 1980s Spain. He has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, National Review, The Weekly Standard, and National Affairs. He's a proud member of the Heterodox Academy, founding member of the Heterodox Academy. His, research, um, his current research concerns factors affecting the size and role of government in selected cases in Western Europe and also in the United States, and how they influence attempts at the reform of welfare states. Please help me welcome Gerard Alexander.
2: Thank you all. Thank you from Marianne uh, and Cato for organizing this event. Thank you, Professor Hollander, um, for joining us and sharing um, sort of summaries and uh, highlights from your this recent project, this current project. Um, uh, as should be clear, but let me just run over some basics to help situate my own comments here today. Um, some basics from uh, Professor's book, uh, Professor Hollander's book. Um, I, I uh, we know each other a little bit, so do you mind if I use? refer to you as Paul, if it doesn't sound strange to say that. I'll use Christian names if, if one Jew says that to another. If that, uh, uh, Paul's basic argument is that for decades, far too many, we won't attempt to quantify, but anyway, far too many Western intellectuals have had a fascination with an attraction to authoritarian and even totalitarian projects, rulers, and regimes. He asks, as he's made clear today, why intellectuals might be especially susceptible to these views, these attractions, and then tracks such fascination and support for regimes ranging from Mussolini and Hitler to the Soviets and other communist regimes and down to Hugo Chavez and even North Korea, which you might have thought would be immune to admiration. He suggests that it is difficult, even impossible, to separate support for these regimes from support for the policy goals of those regimes, political, social, or economic. He insists that these dynamics, this fascination, this enduring support, need not, and in many cases, may surely not apply to the majority of intellectuals in a given context, but the fact that intellectuals are, as a general rule, idealistic, and as he just suggested, may have higher than typical expectations on policy and other social outcomes likely uh, might uh, play a role in their capacity to come to admire and defend non-democratic projects aimed ostensibly or allegedly at achieving those outcomes. So that you don't have to, he works through theories proposed by a number of important thinkers, including Edward Schills, Peter Berger, Czesla Milos, Mario Vargas Llosa, and many others, considering in the process whether some characteristics unique to intellectuals, for example, as has been asked in many past years is it their distinctive social position that mixes high social prestige with middling income that might explain the political choices that so many of them have made. He adds to that well-known formulation of inquiry many other more pointed questions. Might intellectuals, for example, have been attracted to what amounted to statist projects because they understand themselves to be members of a self-styled technocratic elite attracted to top-down programs in which they can imagine themselves playing important roles, or at least having them played by people like themselves. Are idealists here meant at least as much in the sense of people simply full-time engaged with ideas, especially susceptible to the charisma of extraordinary leaders, extraordinary leaders, who promise to achieve outcomes that others cannot, and that mundane procedures like those characteristic of democracy cannot. Are idealists, defined in that sense, attracted in some special way to secular, religious, totalitarian projects in particular? In that formulation, we would say that they are attracted at too high a rate, not to authoritarian and even totalitarian projects, but maybe especially to totalitarian projects that offer an idealistic, at least allegedly, and totalistic approach to social change. His book then, as he suggests, catalogs specific intellectuals journeys of admiration for one dictatorship or another. Those are often, as the examples he quoted to you, quite explicit in many cases at being happy to abide by and sometimes even celebrate a lack of concern with constraints on governmental power, the exercise of clearly authoritarian and non-democratic, non-constitutionally constrained um, uh, uh, powers of the state, uh, and in that sense, are explicitly anti-democratic or explicitly reconciled with the notion of authoritarian or totalitarian exercises of power. And after reading the quantity of quotes and analyses that he cites from a wide range of intellectuals, I have to say it is hard to think quite the same way about the Slavos Zizeks and Bertrand Russells of the world if you thought well about them before to begin with. It's a very sobering read to go through the substantive chapters that make up the bulk of the book, reading the kinds of discourses that intellectuals Sartre and many others have been happy to generate over decades, um, praising such deeply obnoxious and destructive regimes, people, and political projects in history. I wanna to focus today on challenging one important aspect of Paul's analysis, however, Although even then, let me say that if my critique is right, it would, if anything, conclude that his analysis is relevant to a much greater spectrum of individuals than even he portrays. So it's a critique, but it's a critique that is concerned that his analysis is even more widely applicable than it might seem at first glance. It is obviously correct of him to have noticed that for more than half a century, people have asked, very much including himself, to what extent this admiration by intellectuals was an affliction, an affliction excuse me of intellectuals in particular, that there was something distinctive about that class of people. I mean class in the very loose sense, a simple category of people. Was it something self-selected, something peculiar to the things that brought them to their distinctive professions? of scholarship and other forms of intellectualism? Is it something distinctive about that occupation? Is it something about the intellectual zeitgeists in which they happened to operate and live that had formed them and hence formed their values, their worldviews, their sense of what was imperative and what was not? And I think that while that focus on intellectuals as a particular caste was understandable, so public intellectualism was understood to have played such a distinctive role, particularly in 20th century European history, 19th and 20th century European history in particular. It's an understandable question, but I think that it is one that may not be optimally formulated today, because there is, I want to submit, substantial reason to think that admiration for non-democratic procedures or practices is today depressingly less distinctive to intellectuals and, if anything, more pervasively distributed among a much wider range of people. So my critique is, if anything, that he's cast his net too narrowly, which should thoroughly depress us all. I want to submit, based my remaining remarks on the proposition that three things have become much more pervasive in recent times. Uh, Let me just list them quickly and then go back and discuss them in a little bit more detail. Three things that have become much more pervasive in recent times. One, political polarization that in the US, to cite only one example, has recast political teams in left-right ideological terms, much more thoroughly than in the past. I don't mean more intensely than, say, in the interwar period, but much more thoroughly than in most of the postwar period, um, most obviously in the United States. Secondly, an accompanying political tribalism that operates often by indicating to people, not just intellectuals, but a much wider range of people in society, that they should feel and should, if asked, voice loyalties to people, positions, policies, actions that they understand to be on their side of a binary left-right political divide. And third, something else, the last thing that I think has become much more pervasive in our times is something that follows logically from that polarization and intensification of tribalism, quite unfortunately, which is a preference for procedural norms, attitudes towards political procedures or procedural norms that based solely in the individual's mind on whether a given decision rule, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment, leads to the outcomes they want on a case-by-case basis, not out of some deeper sense that procedural norms matter as an end in themselves and are to be valued independently of the outcomes they lead to, certainly on a case-by-case basis. Let me develop these three points in just a little bit more detail. First is that ideological polarization has intensified, certainly in the United States, in the post-war period. This is a point so familiar by now that there's little need to describe the intensifying sorting of Americans into more self-consciously left and right subcultures. Suffice it to say that I'm old enough to remember a Republican party that contained a substantial liberal wing and a Democratic party that contained a substantial conservative one, something that is almost meaningless to people, say, half my age. That ensured that prior state of affairs, a substantial overlap between the two parties, ideologically, for example, in both houses of Congress, something that for all practical purposes does not exist at all today. One famous metric of that being only that the Republicans' leftmost senator is still noticeably to the right of the Democrats' rightmost senator, something that was absolutely not the case when I was young. That earlier state of affairs was partly but not entirely driven by regional political identities, and the change has been substantially but not entirely driven by a nationalization of politics that overcame or superseded those regional distinctions. My second point is the effect this has on political tribalism. So why is that polarization relevant to this discussion? I submit that because that change of that polarization seems to have had one, at least one, emergent property, specifically an intensification of the tribalism to which politics is always prone to some degree. Social psychologists have long observed that human beings are prone to confirmation bias, by which we are more likely to apply very different standards of skepticism to information that either reinforces our existing preferred views versus challenges them. The political equivalent is a tendency, and this is what I mean by tribalism, to voice and feel support for political positions, people, proposals that one associates with one's political allies and to oppose those associated with one's opponents. And third, this issue of procedural norms, I'm concerned that those two developments, that polarization and that intensifying tribalism, spill over into people's attitudes, not just towards individual policies, but toward also to the procedural norms through which policies, in democracies anyway, are formulated. By procedural norms, I simply mean decision rules, the rules that organize collective decision making. Democracy is itself a kind of procedural norm, certainly any specific Um, constraint on the exercise of state power as a procedural norm, but you also have diverse norms within procedural norms within democracy, different electoral rules, different constitutional arrangements. Um, The notion that people's attitudes towards procedural norms may be driven more by ideology than any kind of independent commitment to the norm itself might come as no surprise in a town in which most people's views on the filibuster seem to be decided by which party has a majority in the Senate this year. Right, not everyone switches their view on the filibuster, whether it's desirable or not, based on who has the current majority as much as the New York Times editorial board does. But we know that substantial numbers of people, including at the New York Times editorial board, see fit to change their position on that norm depending on the political outcomes it's likely to lead to in the next 24 months. Right? My concern here is that that tendency to subordinate one's attitudes towards political norms to the outcomes, the policy outcomes they're likely to lead to in the short term can extend to issues much more central to the issue of democracy itself than just a technical matter, like a rule within one legislature. And it can extend worryingly to many more people than just the political junkies who sit around worrying about the Senate filibuster. So bear with me for a moment while I describe some research that I'm currently doing with a co-author. We're trying to innovate on survey research that has been done for decades on the issue of what social scientists call authoritarian values, which is related to, but doesn't mean exactly the same thing as that word when we use it more generally. We've asked a large battery of Americans, and we're fielding a second survey shortly, whether they would support a series of government policies or practices that infringe nakedly on core civil liberties, including freedoms of speech, assembly, privacy, due process rights, and other core civil liberties. I'll crudely simplify findings that I insist are only partial to date, but they are already evocative. And that simplification, which is a little premature, is that respondents seem pretty consistently and pretty significantly more likely to support such policies that infringe core civil liberties when they are, one, championed by politicians described in terms ideologically sympathetic to that respondent, and second, when those policies are applied to or target groups of citizens, co-citizens, identified as ideologically distant from that respondent. In other words, it may well be the case that self-identified American liberals are considerably more likely to support in naked infringements on political liberties like the freedom to disseminate and hand out political flyers expressing a point of view in a public place um, and so on and so forth when they are championed by politicians described as liberal and applied to groups clearly associated with conservatives and conservatives are considerably more likely to support those infringements on liberties when they are championed by politicians identified as conservative and directed at groups clearly associated as liberal or progressive. A more nuanced discussion of our findings will emerge with time, but for now, let me just say why I hook this up or connect this to Paul's book. My first thought when reading it, aside from being struck by the incredible range um, uh, of commentary that he unearthed, was to ask whether he's sure that many average citizens, and not just intellectuals, might not form admirations for non-democratic processes, procedures, regimes, rulers, associated with their side of the political divide. That if they're seen as being on the left like the respondent is, or on the right like the respondent is, whether in fact that admiration may not extend far, far deeper into the population than merely intellectuals. To the extent that many others are susceptible to those same admirations, intellectuals and average citizens might not function in fundamentally different ways. And I think in a way, I'm gonna insist, that that's already hinted at, at least in passing in some of Paul's empirical chapters, in which he sees fit to combine comments with some people who are clearly identifiable as professional intellectuals to others who do not seem to me to fit that description as neatly, including no particular disrespect intended, Hillary Clinton and Jimmy Carter. Now, intellectuals may be distinct from average citizens in that they have tended to, and perhaps understandably, polarize ideologically earlier and more consistently or thoroughly than other people have in many countries. But to the extent that a willingness to apologize for abuses of power, a willingness to abide by, or in some cases even champion, a leader or regime with which one has some left or right ideological affinities, and in some cases not just apologize for those uses and abuses of power, but maybe even admire them because they are understood to reflect a pursuit of goals, so passionate that one is willing to forego procedural constraints in the process, to the extent that that describes more and more of our fellow citizens and not just some intellectuals, we have a lot to worry about. That seems to me deeply concerning. That is the sense in which I meant that my critique of Paul's book, the challenge I wanted to make today, is to suggest that the dynamics he talks about are if anything applicable to more people than he thinks or discusses, which should be enough to ruin our days. (laughs) Given his research interest into more of the topics, Professor Hollander will appreciate that I offer no consolation. I'll turn it
0: over to Paul for uh, comments, then back to Gerard. And then we open to Q&A.
1: I just want to (coughs) comment (coughs) Sorry, (coughs) on one aspect of these remarks as to why I was uh, focusing on intellectuals. And uh, nowhere nowhere did I dispute that these attitudes are limited to intellectuals. And um, I addressed in several points in the book of the similarity between the attitudes and intellectuals and non-intellectuals concerning the admiration of these unsavory political figures. Now, there were three reasons why I have been preoccupied with intellectuals. Uh, One is because they have been familiar. I lived in an intellectual environment all my adult life, you know, undergraduate, graduate student, academic teacher, Harvard, UMass. so these were the people I have I have known fairly well. But I think more important that I focused on intellectuals because we, including myself, ex- expect more of them, or used to expect more of them. That intellectuals, after all, their major acclaimed virtue is being critical, critical intellectuals. Well, You know, what what was easy to demonstrate that so many of them were totally uncritical intellectuals and unreflective and ignorant. So I think this was a shocking contrast with their image and perhaps self-conception. And finally, the third reason I was interested in intellectuals, because (coughs) I have always been interested in ideas and the influence of ideas on behavior. And clearly, intellectuals are the people who most self-consciously hold on to certain ideas and try to incorporate them into their behavior. So these have been the reasons. Thank thanks. You.
0: All right. Thanks for that. So we'll open it to Q&A. Um, and uh, I would ask you to please uh, wait. Uh, when I, After I call on you, please wait until the mic gets to you. Um, State your question in the form of a question, please, rather than a comment, because other people are waiting to, uh, to ask their own questions. And please tell us who you are and um, uh, who you work for, if indeed you have a job. Um, Lady <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, in the back.
3: Thank you. I'm Juliana Pilon uh, with the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. And I just want to thank Cato for hosting both these wonderful speakers. The question that I have is specifically to Gerard, because I think he puts his, his finger on the key reason why Professor Hollander's um, discussion is indeed so relevant today. because. So what he discusses is the utopian, um, uh, the utopian um, dimension of both left and right, while you indicate that there is indeed a third relevant perspective, and that's the procedural. The procedural, of course, is what libertarians are all about, namely, to allow uh, for a system that promotes the liberty of people, whether their preferences are left or right, whatever that means, to uh, pursue those interests. The specific question is, and perhaps to both of you, if you like, Paul, uh, what does left and right mean nowadays? Because after all, when we speak of left, insofar as it's utopianism, liberal fascism is what, uh, for instance, uh, Goldberg refers to as right wing and left wing together. But then, what is right? Okay. Is it liberal? So that's. Uh, what thank
2: we're... you. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Juliana. It's good. Good to see you. Um, you know, this concern with procedural norms is not a coincidence, I bring it up in this house of all places. It is a concern peculiar, uh, in, it sometimes feels to us, uh, those of us who take the classical liberal formulation seriously in exactly the way you just described it is a set of rules within which a great deal of activity can happen of all kinds of not just diverse sorts but unpredictable sorts and to allow it to reign and thrive in that way, the thousand flowers blooming. Um, but you know, one does worry that, as with so many other things, that is not the instinct of large numbers of people. And I do fear that the question could be misstated. We could say, look, for many decades, many Americans did seem devoted to procedural constraints of the kinds we've talked about. Now they seem less so. How could we recover that? What may have changed? I think the reason I, I, I think that may be wrongly formulated is it's possible, of course, that what made that Uh, willingness to see power constrained and filibuster survivor, whatever the specific example might have been, due process rights, free speech rights, was because for peculiar historical reasons, Um, American politics were jumbled and complicated enough that people from many different perspectives could say, well, uh, who knows how the effects of this rule will shake out. I can imagine myself being a minority in some issues, but a majority on others. Better to preserve a framework in in, uh, framework in in which many views can thrive, in which minorities, like I may be at times, can be protected, free speech being only a very obvious one. Whereas with political polarization and sorting of the kind we've seen over the decades, Um, members of big political groups feel often tempted to conclude that they are a majority, or they easily could imagine remaining one, so for many years. I suspect, although I have no evidence on this, that it matters that in the last 15 years an enormous number of progressives have convinced themselves that history is on their side, that they're going to be a majority, in which case the reasons to inhibit yourself with procedural constraints, that need just seems to fall away. Why that perception that you're going to be in charge of history would have survived the last 12 months of American politics is a little opaque to me. <laughs> um, I do not think it's a coincidence that that voicing is most fully articulated on campuses, where a certain brand of campus activist sees themselves as overwhelmingly powerful and highly unlikely to be dislodged anytime soon. But once you've left the campus gates. Uh, America presents you with so much more complexity that you think, if anything, the takeaway from last year would have been a revalidation of caution and concern with liberties and rights and protections as a pervasive phenomena to be applied to all, enjoyed by all, including oneself. But we don't seem to be in a moment of realization and appreciation of that.
1: Well, the only thing I might add to this is that i <coughs> I fully agree that uh, many of my findings are relevant today, and in fact, I have in the <coughs> preface two pages devoted to our current president. and uh, I think to summarize or the way I would summarize the relevant today is that the, 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 it shows <coughs> we 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 continue we continue to have evidence of this immense human capacity. For irrational beliefs.
4: So <clears throat> okay. Mal Klein, accuracy in academia, and my only question is, what do the public intellectuals do when their philosopher kings turn out to be thugs? Anyone?
2: I'm certainly waiting for the narrative to emerge with time that, for instance, Chavez's death replaced him with a mediocrity who took Venezuela in a much darker direction or something like that. I mean, you can sort of – uh, just to play off of Paul's point of that irrationality thrives as a key component of the human personality, the ability to talk oneself into and to rationalize one's choices away, um, I won't say it seems bottomless, but it's um, – capacious.
1: I, I would add that I wonder what evolutionary psychologists would say about this human quality to embrace mm. irrational and uh, ultimately self-defeating beliefs.
0: Great idea for the next Cater Forum. Uh, anybody on that side?
2: Yep. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm from Venezuela, uh, <coughs> obviously. We have some of these uh, intellectuals coming down and visiting Chavez, and Chomsky, and all, and many others. But then suddenly, when things are almost as bad as they have ever been, up comes a Goldman Sachs and finances this horrific government. Where does that fit into with intellectuals? Where, where where have been the uproars from the non-admirators and of, murderers of, of Chavez and Malo? Been? Is not the silence of many of the intellectuals really what's worse in here?
0: Do you wish to direct your question to anyone specifically? Any, anybody? Well,
1: I think. Well, I think that this applies to not just to Chavez, but to the other cases too. <clears> that there have been very few intellectuals who publicly renounced their earlier mistaken beliefs. There have been some, you know, people who had this kind of—you might call it—a conversion experience and wrote about it. And we have tons of, you know, books like, uh, you know, the the famous book edited by the British Crossman about. Uh, Kostler is in it and Silona, and many people have some intellectuals have written about the disillusionment with uh, their earlier political beliefs, but uh, it's a difficult process. And I think it might have been more difficult in this country because there used, used to be these huge subcultures which support these beliefs, especially on campuses. So there have been a lot of group support for these mistaken beliefs and uh, with Chavez, uh, People don't like to admit that they made serious mistakes. I mean, they're, they're, you know, Susan Sontag admitted that she made serious mistakes, but that's very rare.
3: But
0: is it rare specifically because, in in a sense, it is a secular religion? I mean, it's a it's a worldview which they have developed and and uh, defended for decades. You you can't just dismiss it. Well, that
1: that's part of it, but I think it it may even apply to personal relationships. You know that when people make some some obvious mistake you know like a bad marriage it's very common nothing political about it but it's it's difficult to examine one's motives And where did i make the mistake why did i pick this person you know m- human beings are, are not made that way to, to to wallow in their mistakes
0: yes sir
5: Robert Cottrell, George Washington University. Um, I'm wondering if we need to look at the definition of what is an intellectual and to what extent there's a certain amount of self-fulfilling prophecy or self-referential aspect to it. Uh, That is, what separates an intellectual from a journeyman, historian, or political scientist at the local state teacher's college who may very well be writing uh, in in his or her field but doesn't achieve the status of intellectual, quote-unquote. And I'm wondering if embracing totalitarian movements to some extent helps propel an individual into the ranks of intellectuals, one they've taken out Uh, a position which is kind of outrageous uh, and therefore gains them a certain amount of notoriety, but also creates a support system uh, uh, from supporters of that totalitarian movement that indeed promotes that individual's ideas uh, beyond that which might be the ordinary scrivener who happens to be uh, again, a professor of political science or or history, and is writing, but is not necessarily uh, does not necessarily gain that profile. Does the very act of of, of embracing uh, a, a totalitarian movement to some extent uh, help create this image that this person uh, is an intellectual?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> I wrote a great deal about this matter of you know, the definitions of intellectuals <clears throat> in both the political period and in this book. And of course, it, it's a slip, slippery concept, and people disagree, especially when you see, who is a true intellectual? You know? And, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and I, I propose that you know, there have been positive and negative stereotypes of intellectuals. And uh, something I forgot to mention, as an explanatory concept of the mis- misjudgments of intellectuals, that they too, like ordinary people, have problems with their own sense of identity. And perhaps you were alluding to that too, that intellectuals have problems with their sense of identity and therefore taking certain political stance have to promote or bolster a sense of identity. But the question is, you know, do, do we think of no, I, I don't think of intellectuals people who are highly specialized and study insects, for example. But they are basically people who are preoccupied with uh, problematic matters, which are social, cultural, and political, not highly specialized. And also, I think inter- we expect intellectuals to be social critics. So, but we can take a more idealized view of intellectuals as being, you know, fearless social critics and idealists, or. We can think of them as an impractical uh, and not terribly competent true believers and uh, idealists uh, who are looking for something that uh, is unattainable.
2: <clears throat> uh, I, I don't want to comment too much on the particular status and nature of intellectuals after having made the point that maybe they're not, we shouldn't limit our focus to them. But I would not be the first by any means, and Paul uh, has obviously written a great deal on how we should think about the intellectuals as a caste or category of people. Um, but I would hardly be the first to point out that you know one big shift from the sort of high watermarks of late 19th century and early and interwar, uh, 20th century intellectualizing, is how much the massive growth of universities and colleges since 1945 has changed the face of intellectualizing to the point where I think many people would use the term scholar or academic and intellectual almost interchangeably um, as a lot of oxygen has been sucked out of the Sartres and others of this world who were intellectuals but not academics and the ranks of those who were academics has um, grown so enormously. That said, I think most, your instinct, if I understood your question right, is that a lot of academics wouldn't properly be called intellectuals and I think that's right they are and I mean this in no particularly insulting sense they are sort of bureaucrats of ideas but they're not in a sense you know intellectual innovators they're not um, big thinkers they're not they're, they may they're not necessarily living a, a life of ideas in the sense in which we might have meant that early in the earlier in the 20th century one comfort that should come from that I think is that many of them are not the kinds of romantic idealists and theorists who might be attracted to full-blown totalitarian projects. And in that sense, I think Daniel Bell's notion that we live after some age of um, high watermark totalistic ideology still feels past. I don't think we're you know, ushering in a new age of that, that kind of high watermark of 20th century um, totalistic ideology does seem as past now as it did 20 years ago or 30 years ago what should be more worrisome is the the mundane erosions, uh, not the great big ones. So it's not a resurgence of totalitarian instincts on the part of average academics I worry about. It's the notion that huge numbers of them might be relaxing their sense that due process is just an important concept and that speech should be tolerated across a very wide array of views held in their society. Now, that's... At the surface, at first blush, that seems a lot less worrisome than someone coming out for a totalitarian, you know, sympathetic to a totalitarian experiment somewhere else in the world. And yet, it, it, I can't tell whether it's more worrisome or less. I mean, it's not obvious to me that it's less disturbing. Just because it's more banal, it seems more banal and less grand. All right, let's, let's go with that,
3: yep.
6: Reagan's American University. I'm just similarly curious. We definitely have been talking a lot about a lot of standards that are defined, considering ideologies, intellectuals, and definitely the main source of debate in the United States as well as across the entire world has shifted a lot of the narrative is saying away from an ideological debate, away from a debate that involves intellectuals to rather there's a claim of an anti-intellectual movement, of a sort of debate that's similarly as Professor Alexander was just saying, a focus on rather your party winning, you taking points for your side rather than your ideology moving forward in and of itself. And so in this sort of a society where we have kind of ideologies and intellectualism potentially going by the wayside, what then do we see when we come to positions where there's political influence that is negotiated under procedures? If really all we have anymore is procedures, what then is the future of our political identities looking like?
0: Anybody Well,
1: I I, am not sure how I can respond to your question. I just would like to say something I should have said earlier, which is relevant to the current discussion, that I didn't use the expression which I used in my book, that intellectuals present day, modern intellectuals, may be viewed as a moralizing, self-appointed moralizing elite. I think that's important for understanding intellectuals. And the second point about intellectuals that they have this conflict between their high levels of individualism and their communitarian impulses, which is sort of unresolved. It's a conflict, a stalemate, whether you are more interested in community or self-realization.
0: Okay, um, gentlemen in the back, and then we'll move to the center, and let's make this round as quick as possible.
5: Uh, John Burton, I'm a journalist. Um, how would you regard intellectual admiration for benign and acceptable authoritarian leaders like Lee Kuan Yew, who's been praised
4: by Henry Kissinger, Paul Volcker, Graham Allison?
0: Thank you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's susceptible to the same, you know, the kind of analysis that if one was more sympathetic to their to the outcomes, they, the policies they were understood to have championed. Um, There's a tendency to um, be more tolerant of the procedural nicety, of their ignoring procedural niceties along the way. Tom Friedman, you know, finding things admirable about Beijing's, you know, crisp, uh, decisive decision making on this issue or that, or these are all, so if if you're asking whether this is as applicable to um, uh, across the spectrum, I think the answer is yes. Um, I mean, in, in a way, we're being invited to have that conversation about some free marketeers, right? The whole controversy surrounding Nancy McLean's book and the notion that Buchanan and others have been indulgent of Pinochet and other governments that compromised liberties in pursuit of free market goals, whether it turns out to apply to Buchanan after all, as it uh, turns out is more complicated than she may have thought. But I, I certainly see no reason why we shouldn't have that conversation and investigate that just as much because if we're right that these are psychological predilections then I see no reason why they shouldn't be common.
1: The only thing I would like to add that intellectuals I have been talking about are ends oriented. They are not not that interested in means. I mean, obviously some intellectuals are, but basically they are ends oriented because they are idealistic. And in fact, they think that, you know, politicians in the pluralistic countries just uh, deal with trivial matters and and are overly inclined to compromise. And they disapprove of that.
0: Okay, let's go to the back. And then we'll have time for a couple of more.
4: Thank you, Marian. Roger Pilon, Cato Institute. Um, Question for uh, Gerard. Um, Picking up on your theme that uh, Paul's thesis is more broadly applicable. Uh, combine that with the utopianism and irrational human beings that you've both spoken of, um, that irrationality is, of course, not universal, or at least some of us like to believe that. And so I would ask, does your thesis that we're more polarized than ever, which seems to be correct, suggests that we're... um, It cries out for an explanation... Uh, why that is so. And is one possible explanation that as the welfare state gets larger and larger, what we want to look at is the behavior at the margin where people are more inclined toward the rational explanation, toward the tribalism, and so (laughs) forth. Is that a possible explanation of why it is we're more divided and that it doesn't pay to be rational? under those
2: circumstances. Um, I I suspect Paul will have thoughts on this as well, but let me just play a thought experiment. Um, You may have seen polls done in the last few years that find that liberals and conservatives are more likely to support even the same policy if it's proposed by politicians that they identify with or by people described as Republicans. If they say, oh, that's something that my people are doing, then I'm probably okay with it, even if in the questions you ask about identical policies, uh, and that may come across as sort of a sort of too cute, um, purely hypothetical or laboratory ready kind of experiment. In the sense that, well, but notice we don't see the two parties actually supporting the same policies. We do find liberals and progressives much more consistently supporting single payer, conservatives much more consistently supporting something else, whatever that is this week. Um, uh, And in that sense, notice that while respondents may say in a survey experiment that yes, I'll endorse whatever my side says, the two sides do stand for some radically different, substantially different things and in that sense, you might say, well, it doesn't carry over into the real world because people really do sort by different kinds of goals. And yet we also know that you know, progressives who found mass surveillance techniques uh, by the national security state, really disturbing under George Bush, suddenly found them extraordinarily tolerable under President Obama, and that's that, that is to say that those laboratory findings don't, in fact, I, I mean, aren't limited to the laboratory or aren't limited to just hypotheticals to which for to which respondents are presented. It does carry into some real world behavior. It would appear. That said, the possibility is that they're saying those progressives in, in that scenario, in that example, are saying, "Well, I, you know, I don't care if he does." you know, mass surveillance, that's fine, because he's for healthcare. And that we need the the second half of that sentence, that the tribalism isn't just that, you know, these are my people, but these are my people because certain issues salient here now are what create that identification. And that welfare state issues may play a, a significant role in that. I wouldn't be surprised to find that what was for so long called lifestyle issues or sort of cultural um, connotations were for many equally important. Um, But I I don't know. That's an interesting research agenda right there.
1: Well, only, only a very, very general comment about polarization in American society. I think this has always been a society or a culture of high expectations. And maybe that's, and you could say that modernity generates high expectations, and in that sense, this is the most modern society because people have the highest expectations, and not just intellectuals but ordinary people. And I think high expectations are likely to lead to polarized conceptions of what's a good society, which we have now. The question is, why at a particular time, and I am not sure why now, but yes, there has been. Polarization. I think it has to do with these conflicting expectations.
2: <laughs>
0: Very good question, uh, gentleman with his hand up. Yep, you. And then we'll move to the center, and we'll finish. We have about five minutes left. Yeah.
4: Uh, Is the problem because we're self-segregating into groups able to say, you know, I really don't know anyone like that, Uh, basically everything Charles Murray explores in his coming apart? And I've been thinking for some time that maybe we need a different kind of political redistricting to maximize competitiveness and lessen the advantages of incumbency and the dominant political
0: parties. Thank you. Anybody
2: wants to comment on that? I'm not unsympathetic. Unfortunately, a fair amount of the sorting is becoming geographical, in which case the redistricting we'd have to think about would have to be um, transcendentally creative. I mean, it would have to re- rethink the fundamentals of whether geographic representation, for example, should be the basis of it, which is a quite, would be a revolution in our thinking on that subject. Yes, sir. Yeah.
7: Uh, Stephen, Shore, I thought a very interesting discussion. Two brief points. I, for one, would not, you know, there's nothing really new in in, in digging out quotations uh, in the last hundred years of alleged intellectuals, but there is an inherent bias in picking out people who have gone off the deep end on left and right. One could, it would be really instructive to find intellectuals, many of whom lost their lives in defense of liberal capital values and free democracy. And the other point is um, there had been true conversions. There was a book called The God That Failed. Oh, take one example of people who gave up youthful infatuation and in their maturity moved toward the center. So I don't think it's always instructive just to take a accurate quotation of someone who um, said something as a drunken undergraduate and then 10 years later sobered up. Uh, it's, it's another story if people are quoted, never advance, and uh, go, to, uh, go to their deathbeds with the same totalitarian impulses that sustain them through what passed for their lives. Yes, I,
1: I am very much aware of this. <coughs> In fact, I have another book on the same topic called The End of Commitment, which is about this phenomenon. And in this book too, I have at the last in the last chapter I have a list of intellectuals who belong to this more uh, praiseworthy group who, who opposed totalitarian systems. And uh, you know the big question is uh, why some people go one way and the others another way. And uh, I haven't, haven't been able to answer that question. <clears throat>
0: Well, I'm very sorry. I I guess it's a testament to uh, the quality of the conversation that there are still many questions um, in the audience that have been unanswered. Unfortunately, we have to end it here. Uh, I would like to invite you to please join us for lunch on the second floor. Uh, Thank you very much for coming, uh, and thanks to our speakers.